episode of Do You Want to Hear a Story was created for adult audiences. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Before we get into today's story, I just wanted to say a very quick thank you to you guys, to our listeners. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast each week for taking the time to rate and review the show, for taking the time to reach out to us with story ideas and feedback on the podcast. When you're bringing a podcast to an audience each week, the only metric you really have to go off outside of how many people listen to the show is the feedback from your listeners. So if I could ask one favor of our listeners today, it would be that if you're enjoying what you're hearing so far and you're enjoying the direction that the podcast is heading in, please let us know that by taking a minute to either rate or rate and review the podcast it would be greatly appreciated and it helps us to know that our audience is enjoying the content that we're putting out each week so thank you guys thank you for taking the time we appreciate it it's the late 90s march of 1999 to be exact a 15 year old girl whispers into the home phone Long before every teenager had a mobile phone and a million ways of communicating with the outside world. This is a private phone call. The girl had been explicitly told not to divulge details of this conversation to anyone. The phone call was tragically the beginning of the end for Rachel Barber. Do you want to hear a story? Will you give a few seconds of your time? Two notes found. The first said, Station, go to Manny, 50 to $80, three special things. The second note, running away. The words spoken by a police officer to Elizabeth and Mike Barber played over and over in their heads for the days following Monday, March 1st, 1999. It's hard to find someone who doesn't want to be found. As a young girl, Rachel Barber did everything she could to chase down her dreams of becoming a professional dancer, with the goal of one day opening up her own dance studio. She worked tirelessly to perfect her craft, modelling her life around dance, excited when she found hardwood flooring underneath the carpet in her bedroom, and even more excited when her parents agreed she could rip up the carpet. She could finally practice at home. And while it wasn't a question of intelligence, more a question of focus, Rachel struggled in school, and she begged her parents to drop out in year nine to pursue dance full-time. For years, she'd been her step-grandmother's muse, often at the center of her grandmother's art shows. She was described as a beautiful girl. Her talents as a dancer were undeniable. That Monday started as any other day would for the Barber family, out in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, Australia. The dance factory that Rachel attended was in Richmond, That required public transport. And as he did every morning, Mike dropped Rachel off at the tram stop on the corner of Riversdale and Elgar Roads in Waddle Park 
at around 9.30am. Rachel left the house that day excited for life. At 15 and a half, things were exactly how they should be. In her mind, life was on track. She was in the fifth week of what would be a wonderful two years at the dance factory. And that Monday should have played out like any other day. Dropped off at the tram station, breakfast at her friend Kylie's house, to the dance factory, and then back to the tram stop for Mike to collect her around 6.15pm. Mike and Elizabeth had been given no reason to think Rachel would be absent from the tram stop that night. And Mike waited as the trams rolled in and out. Each time Rachel failed to appear, he grew more and more worried. Elizabeth was at home preparing dinner, nothing out of the ordinary until she realised the time. Rachel and Mike were at least an hour overdue now. Where were they? She began to worry. She tried to justify the lateness. Maybe they had an accident. No. Maybe a flat tyre. Actually, you know what? The car probably had run out of petrol. Yeah, that would be it. Neither Mike or Rachel had a mobile phone. But at around 7.40pm that night, the home phone rang. Mike was on the other end. He was calling from his parents' place. Noticeably concerned, he explained that Rachel had not gotten off the tram. He waited and he watched a number of trams come and go. No Rachel. He asked if she'd mentioned anything to Elizabeth about going to Kylie's tonight. No. Elizabeth confirmed that Rachel did expect Mike at Waddle Park. Mike confirmed it was the last thing they spoke about when he dropped her off in the morning. Panic began to set in on both ends of the phone. Mike decided he would go to Camberwell, which was not far from Waddle Park at all. But the previous week he had picked Rachel up there, both on Tuesday and Thursday. Maybe she was confused, maybe she got off there. That was not the case. The Barbers were a close-knit family, and Rachel was the oldest of three girls. Her youngest sisters, Heather and Ashley Rose, all knew the importance of family, and they more than respected their parents. Recently, Rachel had worked hard to show her parents how much it meant to her to have their support. Leaving high school and attending the dance factory was a dream come true to her. She knew it put financial strain on the family, so she was more than grateful for the opportunity. Not coming home without letting her parents know prior is not something Rachel would have done. Something had to be wrong. After agreeing that Mike would go and check the stops in Camberwell, Elizabeth made a plan to call the Box Hill Police Station. She'd then call Mike's parents back. She'd then check with Rachel's boyfriend, Emmanuel, or Manny for short. And lastly, she'd phone the dance factory. Unfortunately, it was hard for the police to take Elizabeth seriously. A 15-year-old girl was an hour late for dinner. That did not constitute a missing person. They did encourage the parents to come in, though, if there was no sign of her at the Campbell stations and fill in a missing persons report if they wanted to do so. Rachel and Manny were the Romeo and Juliet of their group. Her mother had watched the two fall in love and often worried about the heartbreak that would come if they would ever break up. When Elizabeth called Manny, he fueled the panic when he told her she meant it. I didn't think she'd actually go. That Monday, Rachel had taken Manny to the shoe store and pointed out a new pair of shoes that she planned to buy. And when asked how she was going to buy them, knowing that Rachel was on an extremely tight budget given the cost of the dance factory, Rachel responded by telling Manny about an opportunity she had, something that she wasn't meant to tell him or her parents about, but the job was providing new clothing and she'd make a lot of money. 
To put his mind at ease, she told him it was nothing immoral and there was no need to worry. This information coupled with a missing Rachel was like throwing fuel on a fire. It was no longer worry. This was real panic. It was fear. Rachel was missing. Elizabeth rang around, school friends, her friends. She had to be somewhere obvious, she thought. Elizabeth tried to calm herself, but Rachel knew that her mum would worry. She knew that she would overreact. This was so out of character. Mike searched the parks close to the tram stops in Camberwell. He didn't actually think he'd find her. Why would he? There had to be a reasonable explanation for all of this, surely. At 8.45pm that Monday night, Mike officially reported Rachel as a missing person to the Box Hill Police Station. The police response was not to worry. She's a 15-year-old girl, most likely off with friends. Elizabeth had her mother come stay with Rachel's younger sisters so that her and Mike could continue searching. They started with the dance factory. No one had seen her since 5.45pm that night when she finished and left for the day, as she did any other day. They searched everywhere they could think to, around the school, around the tram stop she may have gotten off at. Nothing. No sign of Rachel. After tirelessly searching through the night, Mike and Elizabeth went home. They slept. They felt guilty for sleeping. Tuesday morning, half wondering why they'd even went to bed, half hoping that Rachel would somehow show up at school with a story as to where she'd been. That unfortunately did not happen. One of the hardest things a parent faces in a situation like this is convincing people that their daughter isn't just off being a teenager, doing something that she shouldn't have been doing, staying out all night, not telling her parents. The police struggled to take this as seriously as Mike and Elizabeth felt they should. They hear this story a hundred times a day. The parents dropped photos to the Box Hill Police Station, but it was obvious the police still very much had the attitude of, don't worry, she'll show up on her own accord. Mike and Elizabeth knew that the early days in a missing persons case was crucial to finding them. They could not just wait for her to show up on her own. They began retracing her last known steps. Manny joined them in visiting the shoe store that she'd taken him to just the day earlier. It was here after hearing the shop assistant recall her version of yesterday's events, which matched almost identically to Manny's, that he remembered. Rachel had told him not to worry. It was nothing immoral because she was going with an old female friend. Who was this friend? Elizabeth wonders why she said it in such an odd way. She would usually refer to her friends as girlfriends. An old female friend. That was odd. It was now that Mike and Elizabeth realised their daughter had no plans of catching the tram home and meeting Mike at the tram stop. But why has she not said anything? This added to the worry and the panic. What could she have been doing that she decided her parents shouldn't know of? They already knew that whatever she was off doing involved a lot of money. How much is a lot of money to a 15 year old? They continued to search the shops, stopping to show people photos of Rachel and asking if they'd seen her at all no sightings. During their search, a shop assistant planted an idea in their head. She told them of an article from the paper a day earlier about a man who'd been released from prison recently. He'd been in prison for coercing underage girls into an illegal brothel he owned in Fitzroy. Fitzroy was only 10 minutes from the dance factory. By the middle of Tuesday, still no contact. Not to her parents, not to Manny, 
none of her friends, and no one at the dance school. Unfortunately for the Barbers, the original missing persons report had been filed at the Box Hill Police Station. That meant the officer who took the report was responsible for the case. They tried discussing it with officers at the Richmond Police Station, but left feeling confused and unable to understand the lack of cooperation from the police. They felt they had to keep retelling the story of their missing daughter over and over again to anyone at the station that would listen, and it felt as if no one was taking it seriously. The constant reminder, she's a 15-year-old girl, this is what they do, don't worry. During their search and conversations with passerbys, a girl shared a story with Mike of a woman in her late 20s offering her an opportunity to make a lot of money at the Daily Planet, which turned out to be a brothel in Elstonwick, about 20 minutes from the dance factory. Elizabeth felt stupid calling because she was convinced Rachel would never go with somebody like that or even consider something like that. But trying to cover all bases and thinking maybe she'd been told it was a modeling job Elizabeth will call the Daily Planet, who assured her that they would never do anything like that, and no one matching Rachel's description had been there. Mike, Elizabeth, Manny, and a group of family and friends continued to search throughout the streets of Richmond and Camberwell. Nothing. No leads. No sign. She'd vanished. They could never really bring themselves to believe that Rachel may be involved in something like this. But after hearing both the Daily Planet story and the story about the man released from prison, the parents started calling through dancer wanted ads, thinking that maybe Rachel had misunderstood what these were, and maybe this was the opportunity that she had to make a lot of money that Monday night. The days and nights started to mix into one another, the guilt of sleeping while their daughter was missing, coupled with the fear of what could have happened, kept the barbers fueled to search. Friends and family filled in the gaps, bringing food and helping with the search, Rachel's sisters went to stay with family. It was hard for them at home. They knew Rachel was missing and they were seeing the effects it was having on their parents. It was best to distance them from all of this. Mike and Elizabeth continued to butt heads with the police, not feeling that enough was being done, constantly reminded that they'd already taken up a large number of police hours. They were beginning to feel as if they were just pestering the police, but all they wanted was help in finding their daughter. The police did come to the barber's house to search Rachel's bedroom, looking for anything that could point them in the direction of her, and they found the two notes, cementing more than ever their previous theory that Rachel had just run away. Mike and Elizabeth racked their brains as to what those letters could have meant. They soon realised that these letters were at least four months old. The first letter was a list of things to do, be at the station, Go to Manny's, 50 to $80, three special things. Rachel was talking about buying Christmas presents. And as for the running away letter, Rachel was talking about a new pair of shoes called Runaways. Convinced that their daughter had not run away and becoming more and more convinced that they would need to continue this search alone, the barbers began plastering the city with missing posters of Rachel. A friend who owned a printing press helped them by printing as much as they needed. A week had gone by since Rachel had disappeared. It felt like weeks and weeks though. So much seemed to have already happened. Hundreds and hundreds of posters, visits to the police stations, the search of Rachel's bedroom, the notes, talking to hundreds of people on the street, visiting every shop in the vicinity. 
the stress of it all began to get to Mike. He'd become convinced she was dead. Nothing anyone could say could change his mind. It didn't slow him and it didn't take from his determination to find her, but it made an impossibly hard situation even harder. It was best to keep busy, Elizabeth thought. Keep doing something that could help progress the search, uncover a new lead. But in the moments where Elizabeth allowed herself to start thinking, she began to think about a man, someone she worked with, a friend, she thought. She told Mike about photos that she'd received from this man a few months earlier. They were photos of places that Elizabeth and the man had had coffee before. Completely innocent coffees. She wasn't having an affair. But the man had progressively made her feel more and more uncomfortable. Rachel knew about this man, and she made it clear that she did not like him. He would often turn up places he had no business being. He'd come to Elizabeth's work, the cafe where she would sometimes sit and wait for Rachel to finish at the dance factory. She would find his business cards on her windscreen. In February of 1999, he showed up at the house. Elizabeth freaked out and closed all the curtains after seeing him walk up the driveway. He began ringing the doorbell and calling the home phone. After the door wasn't answered, he began walking around the house trying to see through the windows. Later that day, Elizabeth and the girls had been out swimming. When she came down from having a shower, the man was waiting for her in the kitchen. Heather had let him in. He joked about the phone being out of order. Elizabeth, scared at this point, told him that that was not the case and that she did not want to talk to him. She wanted him to leave. He seemed surprised, but he left. Two weeks later, Rachel disappeared. Elizabeth was convinced by Mike and friends and family to report the man to the police. The police responded by asking, what would you like us to do with this information? The barber suggested maybe sending an officer out to his place, something that they were told was not possible. The police officers told them, we feel like you've made a quantum leap here. You've gone from a missing person to abduction and murder. The barbers did what they could. They asked a neighbor of the man if he had been seen recently and if there was anything out of the ordinary. The neighbors told them, yes, we've seen him multiple times in the last week and everything seemed fine. The police did check into this man. He had no record. And the following day, Mike spoke to the detectives again and she asked if he was still concerned about the man. The barbers decided that maybe it was lack of sleep, but after talking to the neighbor, they feel like they may have overreacted. They continued to organize searches of the shops, alleys, train and tram lines. The search parties continued to grow with so many invested in finding Rachel. The first week rolled into the second week and the constant thought hanging over everybody's head. Where is she? Before Rachel began at the dance factory, she'd attended another dance school. Things didn't work out there and Rachel never looked back at her time with any positivity. But Mike insisted that putting up a poster there couldn't hurt, and on the Monday of the second week, he did that. Later that day, Elizabeth received a phone call. Drew, the mother of one of Rachel's old dance school friends, Allison. Allison was known to have somewhat of a photographic memory, and upon learning that Rachel was missing, she told her mother that she'd seen Rachel the night she'd gone missing at around 6.40pm. She was now the last known person to have seen Rachel. She saw her getting onto the Glen Iris tram with another girl, only about 10 minutes away from where Mike had planned to pick her up that night. 
Alison was positive it was Rachel, and she said nothing seemed out of the ordinary. At first, Mike and Elizabeth thought, okay, maybe the police should be looking for two missing girls then. Surely this would motivate them to take action. If the other girl wasn't missing, she would have definitely seen one of the posters by now. The barbers continued to search, following the tram and expanding their search based on what Alison had seen, finally a lead to follow, but they continued to hit dead ends. By the Wednesday, 10 days after Rachel had gone missing, the story had made its way to the media. Police organized for all the different outlets to be at the house at the same time, so the barbers only need to tell the story once. Talking with the media, Elizabeth realized the date. That Wednesday was Mike and Elizabeth's 20th anniversary. Speaking with a reporter, she said it was just my 40th birthday and now it's our 20th anniversary. There's no way Rachel would have run away. As much as they didn't want to, they had to make sure their bases were covered. They went to multiple escort agencies, sex shops and refuge centres, showing photos of Rachel to see if anyone had seen her. No one had. While the endless search continued, missing persons had finally become involved. They had asked the barbers to come up with a detailed list of anyone they could possibly think of that has or had contact with Rachel. Family, friends, school friends, teachers, neighbours. Missing persons called the home to follow up on a sample of Rachel's clothes for the media release. Speaking with Mike, they asked if the family knew someone by the name of Caroline Robinson. Mike confirmed with Elizabeth and they both agreed they did not. The only Caroline the family knew was Caroline Reed, an old neighbour from when the barbers lived in Mont Albert about 20 minutes away from where they live now. Caroline's youngest sister was friends with Ashley Rose. Missing persons asked about Caroline Robertson because phone records showed she called the barbers home before Rachel went missing. The barbers went to see the missing persons detectives to drop off the clothes they'd just bought that was the same as what Rachel was wearing when she went missing. While there, the detectives wanted to speak with the parents. They needed to get clarity on this relationship they asked Mike and Elizabeth about Caroline Robertson, confirming that she was in fact Caroline Reed from Montalbert. Mike explained that he hadn't seen the Reeds for at least two years since they moved houses. He explained that they were friends with her mother and their youngest was friends with the Reeds' youngest and that Caroline was just the older sister, kind of in the background. The police asked why she would have rung the house the night before Rachel disappeared. And this was all brand new information to Mike and Elizabeth. They knew Rachel was on the phone, but they assumed it was to Manny. She'd spoken with him every night on the phone for the last 10 months. The police continued to ask questions about Caroline. Was she and Rachel ever close? Not great friends, more acquaintances. Do you know if the Reeds own any other property? Yes, actually, her father has a place in the country, in Kilmore. Mike and Elizabeth started to feel something was actually happening here. In the missing person's office, it felt like they might be onto something. The detective they were speaking to, David DePaul, asked them to not get their hopes up and please do not contact the Reeds or go to the property in Kilmore. Nothing was guaranteed at this point, but they had leads that they needed to follow up on. On the second Saturday since Rachel had gone missing, the 13th of March, 1999, the missing person's detectives arrived at the barbers just after 6 p.m. that night. The house had become somewhat of a mission control for the search, and it was full of friends and family. 
Detective Neil Patterson, who was a friend of a friend, and he'd been invested in Rachel's case from day one, advising the barbers on what to do until missing persons could get involved, sat down across from Mike and Elizabeth and he said, There's no easy way of saying this. I'm sorry, but Rachel's been murdered. He went on to tell them Caroline Reed was responsible. Once police had found Caroline Reed to be the caller the night before Rachel's disappearance, it became obvious this was someone they needed to talk to. And while she had once been the barber's neighbour, in March of 1999, she was a 20-year-old living in Paran, not far from where Rachel had last been seen by her friend Alison, with the older female friend. Prior to March 1999, Caroline had not been known to the police. No past record of any kind. But 120 metres from that tram stop was Caroline's apartment building. Police knocked on the second floor flat. No answer. Further inquiry led them to Caroline's place of work, not far from her apartment. She worked for a large telecommunication provider in a call centre. Police were informed that Caroline had taken an unusual amount of sick leave over the last 10 days and had in fact mentioned Rachel's disappearance at work, referring to her as the missing girl from the news telling co-workers she used to babysit Rachel and that Rachel had run away many times in the past. Police spoke with Caroline's father and he confirmed that he did own a country property in Kilmore. At this point, there was no sign of foul play and no motive for murder. Police continued to investigate under the impression the girls had run off together. And while Detective David DePaul from Missing Persons spoke with the barbers about their connection with Caroline that day, police were still expecting to bring Rachel home. Police continued to try and track Caroline down, believing that she was the key at this point to bringing Rachel home. After contacting the leasing agent responsible for Caroline's flat and getting a copy of the key, police again visited her apartment, finding it dead bolted from inside, convinced someone must be inside, and completely unresponsive police feared for the occupant and called for assistance from the fire brigade. A fire officer climbed through the window, finding Caroline unconscious on the floor. A bottle of Tegretol, a drug used for treating epilepsy, was found by her side, something that her father confirmed she suffered from. Waiting for the ambulance, police began to look for any sign of Rachel in the apartment. They found none. They did find two packed bags and a used container of hair dye. Caroline's hair did look to have been dyed blonde had a green tinge to it. Caroline was taken to the Alfred Hospital and police continued to search the flat. More and more odd evidence began to surface. They found bags of clothes, size eight, which would not have fit Caroline at the time. She was quite overweight. They found a number of writings with Rachel's name handwritten on them, along with details of a planned trip to Sydney. At this point, police were still asking, where was Rachel? Are the two girls in on this together? Had Rachel already gone to Sydney? Police tried to make sense of the writing and the endless lists that were found at Caroline's flat. Numerous times, Rachel's name was mentioned. Police also found that Caroline had an alarming amount of information on the barbers. Places of birth, birth dates, Elizabeth's maiden name. She had written profiles on the family members and details on their personality traits and their different behaviours. If that wasn't alarming enough, 
it became apparent fast that Caroline had been monitoring Rachel up until her disappearance. Her writings showed detailed knowledge of Rachel's movements, her schooling, her relationship with Manny. Caroline describes Rachel in her writings as strikingly attractive, a teenager with a dancer's body, clear pale skin, and hypnotic green eyes. Rachel had only recently started experimenting with hair colouring, and Caroline knew that too. It became clear to police that Caroline had an extremely unhealthy infatuation with Rachel. Her writing continued on to say, Rachel was a wild free spirit who lived life on the edge, a simple yet complicated girl of enormous talent and contradictions. She was a fiercely independent girl who was passionate, determined, cheeky, loyal, and honest, with a moody and mysterious personality. She was described as argumentative and difficult, eclectic and kooky, crazy, funky, and cool. This was a teenager who didn't suffer fools gladly, but had wonderful charisma. At the bottom of the page concerning to police, Caroline had written, All things come to pass. After being given the green light by doctors, Detective Neil Patterson questioned Caroline in the hospital. Alert but claiming to be tired, she answered his questions, telling him she had killed Rachel, but it was an accident. Caroline was placed into custody. No one except hospital staff was allowed to approach or speak to her without police permission. By midnight, local officers had been deployed to the Kilmore property, which became the site of an extensive police surveillance. Neil Patterson returned to the Alfred Hospital, this time accompanied by his boss, Steve Waddell. At around 1.30 on the Saturday morning, they escorted Caroline Robertson from the hospital's emergency department and placed her in the back of an unmarked police vehicle. They drove her to the Moorabbin Police Station and she was placed in the cells at 2am. As soon as the following day, both Caroline's flat and the family property in Kilmore were completely occupied by police. Endless amounts of notebooks were collected from Caroline's flat, filled with writings about Rachel. She wrote about Rachel with such affection, and she wrote about herself with nothing but hatred. Police at the Kilmore property noticed a strong smell coming from a patch of ground showing signs of increased fly activity. The officer's foot sank into the ground, and as he stood back, he saw that the earth had been disturbed, and that there were signs of recent digging. It became obvious quickly the officers had discovered Rachel's grave. Police tried to question Caroline into her obsession with Rachel, trying to understand why Caroline had filled in birth certificate requests in Rachel's name and why she had so much information on the Barber family. Saturday night, after refusing to answer police questions, Caroline Robinson was charged with the murder of Rachel Barber. She made her first appearance in front of the magistrates Monday, the 15th of March two weeks since Rachel had first disappeared. At this point, police still had no concrete motive. Since Caroline had admitted to Neil Patterson in hospital that she'd killed Rachel, she'd been extremely uncooperative with police, hiding behind her lawyer and refusing to answer any questions. The media presence became overwhelming. The two weeks spent by the barbers plastering the town with missing posters and now the tragic finding of Rachel and Caroline almost straight away admitting to murder, accident or not. One thing was clear. Caroline was methodical. She was well organised. She had well written lists, writings and surveillance of Rachel and the barbers that showed that. The magistrates adjourned her case until the 25th of March. The committal hearing would still be months away. 
she was remanded into custody at the Metropolitan Women's Correctional Centre in Deer Park. Rachel's funeral was held on the 24th of March. Over 850 mourners gathered. And at the same time, Caroline prepared for her second visit to the magistrates. Prosecutor Scott Johns told the court the following morning that the Homicide Squad was now in the process of preparing 60 witness statements. The police brief, including forensic test results, would be extensive and looked like it would likely take at least three months to complete. No application for bail was made. She was remanded into custody. During the weeks leading up to her committal hearing, her lawyer began trying to build a defense. She was as uncooperative with him as she was with the police, claiming that she was not the sole perpetrator in Rachel's murder and that there was two others involved. They'd left her to take the blame. She could not name them. A picture began to form quickly while police continued to interview people in Caroline's life. They found it hard to put a long list together. Yes, there was her boss and co-workers. They all said that she was a good worker, a quick learner, punctual. Co-workers shared stories of Caroline's ex-boyfriends and the life that she claimed to have, only then realizing that they had no names to share with the police. Caroline claimed to often go out clubbing with her friends, but police could find no friends and no ex-boyfriends. Her lawyer confirmed that she was a very lonely girl who had no friends or any type of social life. She told co-workers that she had multiple friends in the performing arts and she would often share stories with them. In reality, the only person she seemed to know in the performing arts was Rachel. While not obvious to the people in her life, Caroline had become convinced that her life was not worth living. Rachel had the life worth living. She had friends, she had a boyfriend, she was pretty and slim, she was a dancer and a model. She had a life. People that knew Caroline around the time that she changed her name from Reed to Robertson, which was only a year or so earlier, described her as manipulative and someone who liked to gossip. No one called her a friend. Everyone referred to her as more of an acquaintance. Caroline continued to be no help to police, refusing to answer questions and giving no reasons. While her endless lists gave small amounts of insight into what she planned, written in an odd code, police were able to see that she had multiple plans in place for what to do after Rachel's murder. What was uncovered? The phone call Caroline made to Rachel the night before her disappearance was when the murder plot was put into action. Caroline offered Rachel $100 to be part of a highly confidential psychology study. This was the money that Rachel spoke to Manny about that would have allowed her to buy the shoes that she showed him earlier that Monday. And having known Caroline for years, she trusted her when she said not to tell anyone. It was at her plea hearing that the psychologist treating Caroline was able to detail exactly what had happened on the night of Monday the 1st, 1999. She sobbed in the dock as her barrister read aloud her writings of self-loathing and hatred. I feel like a troubled and tortured lost soul who has been thrown into a world of angels, she wrote. She called herself an alien with horrible things bottled up inside. Caroline had told the psychologist that she had strangled Rachel Barber with a piece of telephone cord from an obsolete handset, then kept her body hidden in the bedroom wardrobe for two days, with the cord still around her neck. When her father visited the flat the following day, he noticed that she took an unusually long time to answer the door. 
and that the door to the bedroom remained firmly closed. Caroline later told the psychologist she had shut the door to discourage her father from entering and potentially finding the body. The prosecutor said in his summary that this killing had been executed in a particularly cruel and callous fashion. Manual strangulation seldom leads to instantaneous death. It requires an application of some force applied at close quarters for some seconds or minutes. Caroline also told her psychologist that Rachel had begged her not to hurt her. The day following the murder, Tuesday, Caroline still went to work, but she was notably quiet, which resulted in her boss driving her home to her flat. It's not known exactly when Caroline killed Rachel. Neighbours below said that they heard crying and sobbing coming from the flat above early on Tuesday morning. But Caroline did call her own home phone from her desk at work at 10am on Tuesday before her boss took her home. Caroline finally admitted that her previous story of the two accomplices was false. She had in fact acted alone. From her psychologist, after coming home from work sick, she hired a truck and a driver to help move the body, telling the driver that she needed help moving a sculpture. He took from her wardrobe Rachel's body wrapped in two rugs and placed in a large army bag and delivered it to the Kilmore property two days after Rachel went missing. Following this, Caroline still attended work. She went to the Grand Prix using tickets from the office. She even called the barber's home speaking with Rachel's uncle, calling as a concerned friend who had just heard about Rachel's disappearance. The prosecutor asked for all of this to be considered. While the defense tried to use her mental state as a defense, the prosecutor asked that the courts take into consideration that Caroline was able to function normally, effectively, and even ruthlessly following the murder. He went on to say, her conduct after the murder was therefore particularly cold-hearted and calculating. She had set about creating the impression that she was leading a normal and unremarkable life while having the body of a child that she'd murdered in her cupboard and planning and executing its disposal and at the same time attempting to gain funds, presumably, to assist her in her own escape from justice. Caroline had tried and failed to get a $10,000 loan that week. By the time the committal hearing came, Caroline appeared much thinner. It was the first time the barbers had the opportunity to see her in court and hear how the events unfolded that led to their daughter's murder. The media coverage was aggressive. The way it unfolded was movie-like an obsessive next-door neighbour, watching from afar, plotting to kidnap, murder, and then potentially assume a girl's identity. She pled not guilty to the murder of Rachel Barber. The magistrates determined that there was sufficient evidence against her to support a murder conviction and ordered her to stand trial in the Supreme Court. Still claiming to be innocent, the trial was set for September 2000, but issues with the defence's paperwork pushed the date back until October 10, 2000. It was a surprise last-minute change that happened before the trial date. Caroline changed her plea from not guilty to guilty. Although the Homicide Squad believed they had more than enough evidence for a murder conviction, they were glad to hear the plea had changed. This meant the family could now be spared the stress of having to go through a trial and give evidence. No jury, no waiting. She was sentenced to 20 years in jail with a minimum of 14 and a half years. Justice Vincent said the malevolent woman killed to achieve an unreasonable and unreal dream. 
You were motivated by envy of Rachel's beauty and her personality. And all above, I am satisfied because you believed that she would be likely to have a happy and successful life of a kind that you anticipated you would never experience, the judge told her. He also told her, What has emerged from all the material, in my opinion, is that you suffer from a deeply entrenched personality disorder, which contributed to your conduct, and at this stage at least, you represent a real danger to anyone who may become the unfortunate subject of your fixation. In 2015, Caroline left jail on parole. have some breaking news for you now. A Victorian woman who stalked and murdered her 15-year-old friend in 1999 has just been released on parole after serving 14 years in prison. Let's go live to Today Melbourne reporter Justine Conway. Justine, what more can you tell us about the release? We understand it just happened moments ago. That's right, Sylvia. Just moments ago, Caroline Reed Robertson was wearing a dark coloured baseball cap and she was picked up by two friends who drove her away to begin her life of freedom. According to fellow inmates here at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, uh, she never really spoke about her crime during her time in custody. That crime, of course, was so shocking. It's inspired books and even a telemovie. Uh, in 1999, she strangled her friend, her younger friend, 15-year-old Rachel Barber, she hid her body in a wardrobe for several days before burying it in a shallow grave. And this was all in a sick attempt to try and assume the 15-year-old's identity. She wanted to be as beautiful as Rachel, have that personality and that life. And she thought if she killed her, she could become her. So uh, today is a very tough day for the Barber family, Sylvia. They uh, had been hoping that she would spend more time in jail. All they hope now, though, is that she will continue her rehabilitation while outside prison. All right, Justin Conway with that breaking news. Thank you. And now, folks, it's time to say... Thanks again for dropping in. We hope you'll make this a weekly visit. And we bring the family home. You've enjoyed the evening as much as we've enjoyed having you here. Carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night, now.